I know we have been uh, short on snow this year. I don't know as if we have to be so um, uh, zealous to get it all at once uh, to catch up, but uh, what a beautiful uh, sight driving to church this morning if you don't think about the roads being slick. Well, John chapter number 13, if you have your Bible, is still open there with you. I read yesterday a story of the tortoise and the hare. How many of you have heard that story before? Uh, it's an old one, very familiar to you. And um, something going on, huh? All right. Well, uh, as you read through that uh, story and you think about it, we tend to come out of that setting that uh, slow and steady wins the race. How many of you think that's the moral of the story? Slow and steady wins the race. And so if you just keep plodding along, you'll reach the finish line, you'll beat the fast guy or the guy that, that is fast. Well, what if the moral of the story is something else? What if it's to be understood that boasting and pride loses the race? Well, at least that's the case with a hare. And most of the comments I found online trying to explain me the philosophical point of that story. His own downfall was his boasting and his confidence in his speed and his ability. and, And that led to his own defeat. Well, Proverbs reminds us, doesn't it, through Solomon, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And how, uh, how often have we seen that well-proven verse in real life? We, maybe even ourselves, have, have been overly confident about a situation or maybe our own giftedness or preparedness only to be embarrassed when testing or trials or when something come up. It is a it is a miserable place to be, and it is, not, uh, it is not an easy thing to go through. Well, that's what we see in the life of Peter, especially in our text. Someone defined Peter as uh, very impatient. He was uh, quick to speak and slow to listen. Uh, if you know anything about him in the gospel narratives, you'll find that he is a leader among the twelve and very assertive, and someone says he... He has that idea of most of the time switching foots for his mouth. I mean, it's not just taking it out. He's just continually switching from the left to the right. One of the things we know about him is that he had the the potential usefulness of great good throughout the ministry, uh, Jesus' ministry, many of the things that he said. But we also know along with that, He had been embarrassed and rebuked, and this would be the pinnacle of that uh, in our text this morning as he comes to face this reality of denying Jesus. Well, there is something to be said that we are to learn from our mistakes. Uh, That's wisdom, isn't it? Um, But isn't it also just as wise to learn from someone else's mistakes? Uh, And I hope that may be a little bit of what's going on in this text and why it's preserved for us. So let me set a little bit of the context before we look at verse 36 through 38. Jesus has just announced he is leaving them, uh, initially meaning that he is going to die for them. and, uh, and, And he is leaving them in that regard. But it means more than that. He is leaving them in the sense of he is going back to the Father. We'll explain this later and actually... 
uh, verse 1 of chapter number 14 implies this, not just dying for them, leaving them in the immediate presence of his passion, but also leaving them to go back to where he came from. And so he's been instructing them how to live. And, and in his instruction, as he's leaving them, I want you to love one another. We, we read that this morning, looked at that several weeks ago before Christmas. This is how people will know you're my disciple, that you have love for one another. That's what you're supposed to be doing while I'm gone. Well, as that being said, as you begin in verse 36 through the end of chapter number 14, Jesus begins to interact with four different disciples dealing with issues being brought up of Jesus leaving, questions that stirred in their heart, and and really um, Jesus interacts with them. The first is Peter, naturally, in their text this morning. Second, we'll look at Thomas, and then you'll look at Philip, and then Judas, which John makes sure we know it's not that Judas, it's the other Judas, not the one who betrayed him. And in this exchange, he brings to light what's going on with the reality of the disciples' thoughts as they hear Jesus teach this hard thing about him leaving. With Peter, in this exchange in verse 36 through 38, uh, it, it deals with the rejection of this hard news. The notion that Jesus is leaving them and they cannot follow him is hard for him to swallow. In fact, uh, not just they cannot follow, more specifically that Peter cannot follow. He's just not having it. He's not accepting it. And I just want to make an observation of this as I was thinking about it and I thought it worthwhile just to challenge you a little bit what do you do when you get to the bible and it teaches something very hard to swallow how do you handle that how do we deal with difficult doctrines in the scripture now i know the main things are the plain things and the bible is is given to us in a way to understand and comprehend but there are things that press up against us that and if we're honest we don't like or maybe i should just speak for myself and not you how do you deal with that I think our tendency is much like Peter in that first rejection and editing what we read, isn't it? I think about the sovereignty of God and how, how that presses up against our own senses at times. And we want to correct that. We want to speak into that and, and reject that instead of sitting and listening and be like, is this really what the word of God is teaching us? All that to say is there's a time to speak and there's a time to listen. And uh, we are much like Peter in that regard, aren't we? We get those backwards. Nevertheless, it's just a passing observation. I want us to think through this event together uh, as we consider our own testing and trials and maybe some benefit from Peter's example. The first of which is we, we have to acknowledge because we're very quick to take Peter to task, aren't we? We're, we're, going to, uh, we're going to just expose all of his folly. It's easy to do that. It's fun. He, he makes it easy for us. And, and so let's just, let's just abuse Peter and, and what he went through. But there is something that I think you see in Peter as well as the other disciples that should be part of our own discipleship. And that is, there is no denying that he has a strong desire and affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he is mistaken in some ways, we'll look at in a moment, but on the outset of that, we have to admit, and it should be with us, that, that Peter loved Jesus. Maybe not as much as he thought he did, and, and the said of this, as you get to the end of the Gospel of John, 
But, but consider Peter's own life. He had left everything to follow Jesus. Uh, you remember he was a fisherman and, and Jesus came to him and, and this big display of catching a fish, a lot of fish. And Peter says, depart from me. I'm an unclean man. And then at that point, Jesus commissions him to follow him. Peter leaves it all behind to follow Jesus. He was committed. There's no doubt about it. And all through the Gospels, uh, we see not only was he committed in following Jesus, and that commitment tested when everyone else is leaving him in John chapter number 6 because things are difficult. Uh, who stays? Peter and the twelve. And who speaks up when he says, are you going to leave also? Well, it's Peter, isn't it? Where will I go? You have the words of eternal life, and we believe that thou art the Son of God. Not only was he committed in following Jesus, but he was convinced of who Jesus was. There was no doubt in his mind. In Matthew 16, you may recall that event when Jesus is asked him, who do men say that I am? And, and they said, well, you're Elijah, and you're, you're Moses, and you're all these different people. People are saying about you and he looks at him and he says who do you say that i am and it's peter who speaks up and says thou art the christ the son of the living god so here is a man who has definitely showed that he is committed uh, that he is convinced in who jesus is three and a half years into the ministry of following jesus forsaking everything to come and, and there's not a moment of regret in peter's mind here he's not second guessing it um, he cares for the lord jesus christ there's an affection, there's a, a love, there's a desire to be with him. And there's an attachment to him. And I think there's something of that, I don't think, I know the Bible tells us there's something of that for all of Christ's followers, even us today. In fact, Peter writing to the church in his first letter says uh, of the, the Christians, though you have not seen him, Peter saw him, but you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. 1 Peter 1 8. And there's a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. As you come to know who he is and believe in him and trust in him, there's a, there's a sweetness, there's a growing in fellowship, a, an affection, a desire to be with him. In fact, that's what makes 14 1 and following so sweet, isn't it? When he says, I'm going to prepare a place and I'm coming back for you. Because the believer wants to be with Christ, wants to be where he is. As a desire, in fact, Paul says it so boldly in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. Isn't that a strong statement? Do you have an affection for Christ this morning? Do you have a love for him? Uh, in fact, I think the theologians often refer to the greatest aspect of heaven to think about isn't just the streets of gold and and all the other things that are peripheral on the outside, but it's that, well, they refer to it as that beatific vision. And that is simply to say the sight that makes me happy, and that is seeing the face of God in Jesus Christ. And beloved, one day we will see him as he is. What a joy that is to know. 
I think you see that in Peter's life. It'll strengthen over time. But, but here, at least on the outset of this, when you see in verse number 36 and you're kind of working through what's going on in Peter's life and mine, it's not out of lack of affection for Christ. It, it actually is an affection. There's an attachment to Jesus Christ that is right for every believer. But what is not right is is his not willing to listen to Jesus and his overestimation of himself. In fact, I think that's what you see as this conversation is going on. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. He's not saying you will never be able to come, but now you won't be able to follow me, but you will follow afterwards. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I just can't handle the fact that you're leaving and I'm not going. I will lay down my life for you. Now, if I could say it this way, if you take notes, the first point would simply be an affection for Jesus or an attachment to Jesus, which is something we all should possess. But the second aspect, I would say, is something that we have all fought with and hopefully have put to death, and that is the reality that we are not as strong as we think we are. We're not as strong as we think we are. Would you agree with that statement? Well, I mean, we could probably just move on to the third point. That's a pretty important thing to remember. Peter's saying, where are you going? And, and I want to follow you. Why can't I follow you? Is it a matter of commitment? I'm ready to follow you now. In fact, not only am I ready to follow you now, I will lay down my life for you. It sounds very familiar, doesn't it? In John chapter number 10, Jesus gives us the discourse of the good shepherd. And what does he say the good shepherd does? He says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Well, here I think John is doing a little kind of play on words here. Not that Peter didn't say it. I think Peter literally said it. But I think John is giving it to us in light of this. Here the the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, not the sheep laying down his life for the good shepherd. Well, nevertheless... Matthew records this this strong denial of Jesus' warning for us. And then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now Peter answered him, Though they all fall away, because of you I will never fall away. He said, Let the rest of these Jehus fall away, but I'm not. I'm committed. I'm in this thing. I'm not going anywhere. I will go, and Luke records it, not only I will die for you, I will go to prison for you. I'm not going anywhere. In fact, that's the tone we hear, isn't it? I'm, I am, I'm here above the rest. I don't care what else happens. He's committed. He cared for him. He knew himself and his resolve. Now, there is something of this, the folly of self-confidence or Peter's pride, isn't there? Because it isn't John telling Peter, you know, Peter, you're going to deny Jesus. It isn't Thomas telling Peter, you know, Peter, you're going to deny Jesus. Who's speaking? Who's telling Peter this? Jesus. And don't you think Jesus has been right all up to this point and you're going to correct him? I mean, that in itself should have been a warning and a reminder, Peter, you might ought to listen a little bit. 
and we'll see the danger in just a moment, but I just want to say there is a progress in sanctification to where we get things out of balance. There are times in life, and as you're walking the Christian life, and you made some moral decisions, and you pattern your life after some morality of the Bible, or maybe you're raised up, and you got certain convictions about things, that you tend to begin to look at other people, and you judge them thinking that your better off state is because of the wise decisions you made. Uh, to put it another way, we, we may not say that, but to some degree, we are where we are because we are who we are. Because we've been wiser and we've been smarter and all the other things that we could attribute to that success rather than realizing that, that it is by the grace of God. I think that's what Wesley said as he headed out uh, to a, a hanging when he looked at the man being hanged and said, but for the grace of God, there go I. It is easy for us to be judging ourselves against other people and diminishing the reality or at least our own acknowledgement of needing God's help. And Peter hadn't learned that yet. In fact, Scripture reminds us, Paul does in 1 Corinthians ten twenty two. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There's a danger when we think too much of ourselves. And the danger is seen simply because we have an enemy. And that's what Jesus reveals to Peter in Luke twenty two thirty one, When he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan determined to have you that he may sift you as wheat. The King James says desired. And the word is a, a strong word. Simply means he, he wants to take possession of, ownership of. And so we, we see Satan desiring, wanting, to possess, to, to take Peter. And it reminds you of Job when Satan goes before God and he, he, he kind of throws up this, this request demanding rights to Peter to sift him, to try him, to destroy him, to bring about pain or harm or damage in his own life. It is a reminder that Satan's intention is never for good. His design is never for our benefit or for our improvement, but always for evil, always for our destruction and, and temptations and trials and those things that we face. And in the side of our enemy, it isn't for restoration or humiliation. It is, it is to put away our influence and destroy our effectiveness for the gospel. It is to tear apart our hope. That's what Satan wanted with Peter. He's the, the leader of the group, and his, his desire for Peter was not for good, but for ruin. You realize that the Bible reminds us that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, right? We, our, our, we have an enemy. We, we are in a spiritual warfare, and and that warfare is, is for our very souls, it's for our faith, it's for our influence and effectiveness, our productivity. It is for our harm, at least from our enemy's advantage point. I think Peter learned the lesson because later on he would write to us, 1 Peter 5 eight, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. The enemy of our souls and the enemy of Christ 
wants nothing more than our destruction. Peter here speaking from experience reminds the believers to resist him firm in the faith. And it isn't just the fact that we are in danger because we have an enemy, that it's not simply the, 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 the main thing that we face, but going along with that, we have a weakness in our own flesh. And that's what Peter did not understand in himself. Notice Jesus telling Peter to watch and pray in Matthew 26 in the garden. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is what? It's weak. It's not that you didn't have a desire or an affection. It wasn't that you weren't useful to the Lord and, and, and served and, and said some great things. And it wasn't that you weren't gifted, Peter. It's just reality in your own strength. You're weak. Well, he had a devotion to Jesus. We could say that. Just as many have a devotion to Jesus. But isn't there a reminder here that our strength and our ability to stand in the day of temptation does not rest in us, but must come from God himself? Jesus will even say later on, John chapter number 15, without me, you can do nothing. That means bear fruit, but it also means stand in a day of testing and temptation. Our temptations that you face and I face in this life is a stirring up of our fleshly desires. Isn't that what James is talking about when we're drawn away by the, by the desires of the flesh? It's a stirring up of that residue or that remnant of our former life or the old man. And, and we don't fight these things with the arm of the flesh. In fact, Romans 8 reminds us that it is in the power of the spirit we put to death the deeds of the flesh. Is it not? Robert Murray McShane is well quoted and, and known for his Bible reading program, died in early life, um, very impactful. Uh, made this statement, he said this, the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. What if you think about yourself that way? You may not be so bold as to say that. All I am saying is the flesh is weak. That's what Jesus said. And the flesh will not be strengthened in your own resolve alone. Uh, you should not and I should not think and feel like we're so beyond the fact where we could be tempted or fall in some great way or cause some great disaster and sin. Now, I'm not saying that you should live in fear and I should live in fear, but what I am saying is that we should not have confidence in our own ability or our own giftedness or past successes uh, that we have in the church or, or in the kingdom of God because history itself, time itself, has proven the fact that many gifted men and women and, and um, successful people, as we would say in the kingdom of God, with great abilities have proven this same point that they have fallen to the weakness of their flesh because they were not vigilant and they put too much stock in their own abilities. Isn't that the case? What a sad case that is. But we're also in danger, not because of the weakness of our own flesh and the we have the adversary, but because we live in a dark place. 
it takes a lot more effort to go against the grain or go against the, the flow of things, doesn't it? Peter's temptation is not in the upper room, is it? It's easy to be bold and say, I'll never deny you. I'll, I'll go to jail with you. I will die for you when you're in the presence of Jesus, isn't it? When you're there in the upper room and it's just the, your comrades and, and you're, you're, you're building each other up. But his temptation isn't in the upper room. It's in the, it's in the garden, isn't it? In the darkness of night by the, by the fire. Now that's really how we live this life, isn't it? Oh, that we come to church and we get stirred up and God gives us confidence and courage and encouragement and, and boldness. And some of us in, in those kind of season in an extraordinary way, God has met with us in a church service or a, or a revival service or some kind of conference. And we've made some great commitment to God only to find the world didn't get the news. You're not like that anymore when you go back home. And it's there where the temptation has taken place, isn't it? In the darkness, when the pool is against us and how often we've seen, maybe by our own foolish example, turning aside because we were over, overly confident and self-reliant. Now, how do we know that we are trusting in ourselves and our own abilities? How do we know we're living the Christian life according to our own strength? And resources. Well, I want to give you three things that we see very quickly. Just just list these off. One, we don't heed the word of Christ. We don't heed God's word. Uh, we reject it, or we separate. We distance ourselves from it. Instead of it speaking into our life, it begins to speak, and we we kind of converse with it, and then it begins. We we don't hear it say anything at all. We we have that distance instead of coming under the word of God and and taking warning from the word of God. We 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 have that withdrawal, that shift, that change in our own lives. You know how that is in your own life as you. You forego your time in the Word or you forego that humility that comes when the Word speaks to you and, and, or it just becomes something you do instead of that Word ministering and, and speaking into your own life. And, and at that point, that point, we stand in danger of resting in our own giftedness and abilities and strength. But secondly, and I think Peter displays that as he is bartering with Jesus or going back and forth with Jesus here. But secondly, he did not seek help through prayer. He rejected the ordinary means of grace that God has given to us to strengthen us and to help us. He did not seek help through prayer. That's what happened in the garden, right? When Jesus told Peter to wake up, watch and pray. The spirit is willing, Peter. You've got a heart and a desire to do what is right. It's not out of evil intentions, but you don't possess the strength in yourself. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. What does Peter do? I'm not trying to be mean to Peter because I feel like I've been there and you have been there too, right? He goes back to sleep. He forgoes the, the, the means which God has given to him to prepare him to stay him in the time of of testing and temptation. Isn't that the case in our own life that, that we, we falter many times, rest in our own strength many times because we fail to turn to God for the help and grace that he has promised to provide for us. 
If you have a prayerless life, then you will have a powerless life. You may think yourself strong and impervious to the things going on and resolved in your commitment, but if you're not seeking the Lord continually for the strength and aid to, to, to keep those resolutions or to keep that resolve, then you will falter and you will fail at some point and in some way. Isn't that the case? Jesus tells us that later on in John chapter number 15 as he's talking about they can do nothing. And, and part of that, he brings them back to the, to the provision, the means of praying. Ask and you will receive. And so we see Peter himself not seeking help through prayer, thinking that he can handle it himself because he was committed, because he cared. Because he had past successes and, and those things going for him. And yet in the immediate moment, what he needed was the help and strength from God to stand in a time of testing. And yet he would not seek it, did not seek it. And that oftentimes is our own folly and our own situation. But the third thing I think we see in Peter, that showing this resting in your own strength, is he withdrew from the company of believers. And we'll see that more when you get to chapter number 18. But just very quickly, it is a declaration that as he is going into the, what you might call the fire uh, uh, at night or the sinner's fire, or the, the, the world and, and all that's going on, he's going there without the rest of his, his, the rest of his brothers, companions, without the company of the believers. And so it is... Oftentimes the case with us, symptomatic of something else going on in our life as we withdraw from the fellowship with one another and the fellowship of God's people. It's a very dangerous place to be. But I would say adding to that, adding to this, this foregoing the spiritual means of prayer and, and not listening, heeding to the word of God and this presence or the fellowship of believers so that they could strengthen one another in this great time of testing as Jesus would be removed and put to death there's this immediate response we see in Peter and that's always the response of the flesh isn't it think about yourself in a time where you're tested somebody cuts you off how do you respond plow trucks driving in front of you 15 miles an hour and he won't speed up and you're just like come on dude I got somewhere to go a mile down the road you know well, more than that, isn't it, though? We see those silly areas, but isn't oftentimes as we, as we rest in our own strength, God revealing to us where we're at because our immediate response to trials and tribulations is a response to the flesh, whether it's in anger or, or, or hatred or violence or whatever it may be. It's what you see with Peter when the guys are coming for Jesus. The first thing he does is chop at a man's head to deal with the situation. All this was confirming Jesus' words, wasn't it? In a short matter of time, Peter, you will deny me three times, not once, not twice, but three times in just a couple of hours. You're so sure about yourself, but it will not be very long before you deny me three times the last calling a curse upon himself. Now, I want to look here in, in Luke's account, and you can turn to Luke if you want. And Peter, we see this affection 
a good affection, but we see a, 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 he's confident in his own ability. And so reminding us that we're not as strong as we want or as we think we are. And, and with that, we want to leave with the reality that we have help and hope. All right? Help and hope. And you're in Luke. And let me just read here in John. Jesus said, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, Jesus knows verse 38 before he says it. Do you get that? So he knows what's going to happen with Peter's life. But notice back, well, you don't, you're not turning there. Verse number 36, he says, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. Now, why is that helpful and, and hopeful? Well, I think it's helpful and hopeful because it reminds us of the, just the ministry of Jesus Christ to us, to the believers. You know, Peter says, I'm going to die for you. But the truth is, and even in Jesus' words, will you die for me, Peter? Don't you know that's exactly why I'm going away, to die for you. And isn't our own failings and our own sin, isn't resting in our own strength, isn't it a reminder, a glaring reminder that you and I need a Savior? Wouldn't you think so? The fact that you are not strong enough in and of yourself, that you're not in and of your own ability capable enough, the, the fact that you sin and have sinned and, and will sin, and the same thing with Peter. Peter needed a Savior. He couldn't do it by himself. We need one as well. This is obvious. It ought to be obvious for us that Jesus Christ came into the world to redeem us, to cleanse us, to, to bring forgiveness to us, to offer restoration. And that's what you see in the end of Peter's gospel. The fact that he died for our sins, not just the sins we committed before we come to Christ, but all of our sins paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, even the denial of Peter before he denied him. Peter needed a savior. He needed a sacrifice. And Jesus, our high priest, offers himself up as that perfect sacrifice. But not only in offering himself up that perfect sacrifice, but we notice in Luke's account this beautiful statement. Now, Luke's is a little different because they're arguing before Jesus kind of lays Peter flat. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. For me, it's going to be you who gets the right hand, who gets the left hand. Uh, these guys are uh, unbelievable, uh, really remind us of ourselves. That's why we like them so much. Verse 31, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Notice verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. What proved the greatest help for Peter in his time of testing? Well, we know it wasn't Peter's own ability and his strength, right? That was obvious. Was it not the ministry of Jesus himself praying? His interceding for Peter no doubt uh, Peter's fall was grievous. He wept with bitter tears as we see that, even bringing great sorrow upon his own master to know his closest disciple, the chief disciple, if we could say it that way, would deny him openly after all the 
he had been through, all that he had seen. And yet in that, Jesus says, I have prayed for you. Satan wanted you, Peter. He wanted to have you. He wanted rights to you. He wanted to sift you like we, but I have prayed for you. And he is saying in that statement that he cannot fully or finally have you. He may have some leeway. He may test you and, and tempt you, but he will not have you because I have prayed for you. Isn't that encouraging? It reminds me of Jesus' words in John chapter number 10 when he said, My sheep no one's able to have, right? No one's able to pluck them out of my hand. He goes on and says, No one's able to pluck them out of my father's hands. He gave them to me. Nobody has any rights to my sheep. How does he keep us? How does he minister to us? It's through continually interceding to the Father, even now that he keeps us in, in faith. As he ministers, I think something as he would even pray to the Father for Jesus. Hey, wouldn't you like to have heard that prayer? We have a few prayers of Jesus. I'd have loved to have heard him praying for Peter. We don't have it, but I think he said something like this. He is mine. You have given him to me. I died for him, or I'm dying for him. I'm dying for this, this sin, this betrayal i'm i'm dying for this denial he is clothed in my righteousness you can't have him he's mine and that is our ongoing ministry to us that even in our failings you and i might find a savior who is keeping us who is a friend to us restores us and secures us don't you see the hope in that we, we stand in a, a dangerous place. It's true there's things that we face in this life are, we're not capable in and of ourselves to deal with these in our own strength. And, and yet even in the midst of that, even for the times when we do fail in that, we are brought back to this reality that if we are in Christ, he will keep us to the end. In fact, he says that beginning in John chapter number 13, when he had loved them to the end. And that's the same promise to us. As he ministers to us, claiming us, calling us, restoring us, chastening us, and on it goes. Don't you see the restoration in that, Simon? Even even the precursor to the restoration at the end of John's gospel, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Verse 32, now notice what he says here, and when you have turned again. Isn't that beautiful? You're going to do some, you're going to mess up, Peter. You're going to sin. And it's not good. It's not okay. It will be hard and difficult. It will, it will hurt, but that's not the final word. The promise of restoration, that's what we have in Christ Jesus. And if you've messed up, you've blown it over this summer break or over this past year or wherever you are in your life and, and you're facing with the weight of the guilt of all that and if, if you're in Christ Jesus, the sin is not the final word. It's, it's coming, finding restoration in Jesus Christ and, and realizing even in the midst of that, his amazing love that he keeps us secure. Calling us to come to him to find grace and help and 
and strength in our time of need. But it's also a warning to us, isn't it? This whole thing is a warning to us that we should not put our hope and confidence in our own strength. And church, I think you, you know that you've been in church long enough. Most of you have been in church long enough. But one of those things that we need to be told again and again that our past giftedness or usefulness and commitment, all of it is not in and of itself to keep us or insulate us from trials and tribulations. You and I must seek continually through the means that God has provided for us the strength and aid to live in these dangerous times. Amen? And the joy is that we find over and over in the New Testament because of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and because the continual aid that God has promised us in the time of temptation that we can resist the devil and he will flee from us or we can stand firm against him in faith of Jesus Christ. Well, God is faithful, isn't he? Peter is a good reminder of the faithfulness of our Savior. Sometimes he's a window into our own soul and a reminder of our our need that we may be strengthened so that we do not repeat. <laughs> they used to say, what's the instructions on the shampoo bottle, right? Wash, rinse, repeat. Sometimes we're like that in life, aren't we? Well, some of us more than others. Well, even in the midst of it, dear Christian, take courage because we have a faithful high priest. Not only dying for our sins, but interceding for us, keeping us. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning that we've gathered together. Lord, I do thank you for your mercy that you've shown us. Lord, I pray that for each of us, because we stand in danger in some way or another in this life, and for those who have given themselves over, denying you in some part of their life or in, in some way uh, as in their conduct, Lord, that they would even turn from that quickly while the cost is small and that they would find restoration and healing and, and forgiveness in their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray for anyone here this morning that may not know you, that would they not be captivated at such a Savior? To continue to love and care for and keep someone like Peter and what he offers to us. Lord, I pray that you would even open their eyes to that glorious beauty of who Christ is this morning. Help us today in Jesus' name. Amen.